BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to another edition of Turn Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I am well, recording in a bathroom this week, but bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge guest, legendary, legendary guitarist from the band The Circle Jerks, from Red Cross, and from Bad Religion, Greg Hetston is on the show. More on that in one second. But first... If you want to get in touch with the podcast, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast.com. That's run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and you will get the message to me. You can also find me on social media at left for damien If you want to support the show, head over to turnedoutapunk.com and pick up a t-shirt. Thank you to everyone that does do that. And uh, tell all your friends about it. I play in a band. We're called Fucked Up. We're currently on tour, hence why I'm recording in a bathroom. You can find out more details about the band and records we have coming up and upcoming tours. We're going to Europe and the Southwest coming up in a few weeks over at fuckedup.cc. And I think that's it, right? I don't have anything else to talk about, plug off the top. No. On to today's show. And as I said off the top, a legend on the show today, Greg Hetston. Greg is someone who... Well, if you're a fan of this music, you're, you you probably heard play before because he's been in not one, not two, but three of arguably the most important bands that come out of Southern California. And uh, someone I've always wanted to kind of have a sit-down talk with. I've met Greg. I've, I've been on tour with Greg, actually. We were on a festival tour together, but never really never really had the chance to, to punish him like this. So it's a huge thrill for me. Greg is currently playing back in the Circle Jerks. You can find out. More information about this incredible tour they've been on. Um, uh, I was going to say Google it, but <laughs> definitely don't Google Circle Jerks uh, because you get a lot of weird things showing up. Uh, but you can find out more information about these upcoming tours at circlejerks.net. And uh, the, the, the tour looks incredible so far. They've been on tour with, you know, a who's who of American punk bands. They're going over to Europe, playing with some incredible bands over there. So check it out. One of my favorite bands of all time. I don't really have too much to ramble on about right now. 
Uh, I think that's about it. Pick up the Circle Jerks reissues, of course, on Trust Records. Once again, uh, apologies for the audio for this intro. As I said, I'm still on tour and trying to keep my voice down and record in a bathroom, so <laughs> that's why it sounds a little bit weird today. Uh, but that's that. Oh, and uh, once again, I'm also sorry because last week I teased that there was going to be a turned out of punk from the vaults in between the Red Cross episode and this episode, but you know, tour happens and it did not get put up in time. But I'm going to put that up after this episode, so don't worry. I'm not. I'm not disappearing it from the schedule. But that's that. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Greg Hetston on Turned Out a Punk. Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I didn't tell you this off air, but uh, I don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing without the Circle Jerks. Like the Circle Jerks are my my Beatles, my Rolling Stones, my my real like that was the band that clicked for me in a big way. So thank you for that. I appreciate that because those are pretty giant names you just threw out there. Well, you know, like they, none of them ring as as uh, large in my life. I told Xander, so at the risk of repeating it, my stepfather famously when i was going to go try and see your first reunion show in toronto uh told me that i was not allowed to go and see some come in your face band and oh. that that really <laughs> sealed it for me i had to go to the show and unfortunately you guys didn't make it because you broke up the day before uh but you know what that that was fine because it set me on a path all right but this is not about me this is about you and we got to start this off the way they all start off which is greg how'd you get into punk from the first time you ever came across the genre I think one of my friends' older brother had a Ramones album. I mean, I, I've heard, I kind of heard of it, but didn't quite know what it was, except for maybe in the fashion sense and that it was something new, you know, coming out of New York. And then, out of, then you know, then the whole English thing happened after that. But I heard a Ramones record, and there was just something that, about it that was that aggressive, hard, in your face guitar oriented rock that I was always looking for something more extreme at the time. And that seemed to be it. How much awareness did you have of those kind of like the local proto-punk stuff that was happening around the same time? Cause you got like, you know, Zolar X and the quick, the runaways, even like you've got a lot of the sort of precursors there that weren't like quite as, you know, I guess capital P punk yet. Right. I knew, I knew the runaways, but didn't know anything about Zolar X or the quick until I got into the punk scene and, and by that time, the bands had broken up, so we were on their last legs. Mm -hmm. Never got to see either one of those, but uh, yeah, I had no clue. So where'd you kind of go from hearing the Ramones record for the first time? Like, what was your kind of like next like, next steps? Because you're, once again, you're obviously super young getting into all this stuff, and it's at the very beginning of it. Yeah, uh, I think was seeing a clip of... I mean, heard about the Sex Pistols and all the other records that was going on in England about them and God Save the Queen and all that stuff during the the Queen's was a Jubilee or yeah the the Silver Jubilee I guess Jubilee I guess yeah <laughs> one of the Jubilees <laughs> and uh, thought that was cool. Then I saw this TV show. It was uh, oh who was it? I always forget if it was. Leon Russell or Leon Redbone, because they're both Leons. I think it was Leon Redbone had this like. I'm gonna look it up on my. Uh huh. I think uh -huh. is it Leon? I don't know. I think I'm thinking of the clip. There's like a a famous video clip of this thing, right? 
of the Clash playing on a, a being filmed at some gig in in England, and it was great. The crowd was like pogoing, and people were spitting on them. I'm like, what the hell is this? This is great. I mean, I, I might have heard the Clash, but seeing that clip, like maybe really like, okay, I got I got to look into what the hell is going on with this punk rock thing. It was it was amazing how it seems like it, it kind of just hit like it just kind of like you're saying there you know there the Ramones are sort of this general awareness but then it seems like the media just took hold of this thing and it was you know it was on TV people were talking about it. the Sex Pistols I guess were ripe for media exploitation. You know I'm not yeah I'm I'm just it might have been Leon Russell. don't know anyway whatever it was on one of those <laughs> the clips out there somewhere i found it at one point because i was like that man russell leon redbutter was a really great clip and i remember i remember hearing they were going to be on there and i i taped the audio off my tv i put like the headphone jack into my little cassette recorder yeah I wanted to capture the the live soundtrack of that going down and i thought it was great and uh and then you know, and I started getting hip to like the Buzzcocks and, you know, Sham 69 and this and that. So and when did you, oh, sorry, go on. On the English side. And then I kind of found out, oh, by listening to the radio, that there is a actually an LA punk scene and heard of Dickies on the radio. And that was my first punk rock show was the Dickies in middle class. After hearing hearing the Dickies uh, on K-Rock. So were you listening to Rodney on the Rock? Was that kind of like the exposure? Or was it just generally getting played on K-Rock at that time? It was generally getting played, but I was listening to Rodney and there was also a, uh, there was a couple of like specialty shows. It was more free form. It wasn't much, it was not, It was less formatted, for, formatted than the other rate, rock radio stations. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you would hear David Bowie and then you would hear the Sex Pistols or you know, this or that, or something more, you know, Roxy music and stuff like that, more, or, you know, Lou Reed, that kind of thing. But it wasn't really getting played on the mainstream radio too much, or at all. So prior to that Dickies Middle Class show, had you been to any other concerts? <clears throat> yeah, I just been to the big, you know, the big rock shows, you know, big arena shows and some smaller shows that were, uh, you know, of, uh, and I, I saw like Ronnie Montrose do a, uh, his, what was it? The, uh, it was like jazz rock exploration thing, you know, thing at, at a club. And then, uh, you know, it's funny, a few years later, I was playing the same club. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was mostly like arena stuff, you know but I'd never been to like a club show until I saw the Dickies. Not that I can remember. Nope. That was pretty much my first Hollywood show at the whiskey. Yep. So how did that kind of compare, obviously being shockingly different, I can imagine, but like, what were some of your memories of that Dickie show versus these other shows you had been to? Uh, uh, People were a little more friendly. <laughs> it's like, for some reason, besides you know being at the the big arena show, someone wanted to hand you a joint or something. 
but it just seemed like more of a community. And then when I saw the first band go on, the middle class, they were like people my age, like playing really fast. I'm like, oh man, th- these kids can do it. I can do it, you know? Yeah. Made me feel more confident in getting out there and trying to be in a band. Was that before or after Out of Vogue had come out? Pardon? Was that before or after Out of Vogue? Like before they, did they have records out of that point? Yeah, or? They, uh, probably Out of Vogue was out. Okay. I don't know if I had it yet, but probably got it shortly after. They must have been incredible at that stage. Cause like that record, obviously still yeah. is one of the greats. Right. And I do remember seeing the, uh, Sid doing my way video that they showed. And I remember there was, there was a couple and they were, you know, it kind of frightened me, but you know, they had their noses pierced and they had a safety pins connecting to each other. <laughs> and that, that kind of freaked me out, but, Nobody was, nobody gave me shit because I still had long hair. I still had hair and it was longer and uh, it was, it was pretty cool. Well, like, yeah, it's funny how it's, it seems like it's a couple years later that things start getting really violent from what I've kind of taken from people. Like, it seems like that first wave was very different and very sort of accepting um, and welcoming of every, all types of people. It was, it was just the safe haven for all the misfits, you know, not the band, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) You know, or, or anybody that that was a little different, even if they didn't look different. When did you meet Jeff and Steve McDonald? I met Jeff in, I, it was my senior year, and I was taking Photoshop in high school. And he came, came to class, one of the early, you know, one of the first classes of that semester or whatever. And he had a, a folder, a peachy folder with a, a, a flyer on it, like the bags and somebody else. And I'm like, oh, you like punk rock? And he kind of gave me that look like, oh, is this kid gonna give me shit too? <laughs> and I was like, I like it too. Like, really? And then, you know, we were allowed to bring records and play it while we were developing. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, it, it, we would rotate between the different classmates, bring records, and whoever was partnering up doing the lab stuff, you know? So instead of having to listen to Saturday Night Fever, and uh, Greece, we would be able to put on some punk rock <laughs> while we were in, in the dark room. And then he said, oh, you know, I play guitar. I, go, I play guitar too. And my brother's a bass player. We're thinking about starting a band and that's kind of how Red Cross got started. And uh, it, were there a lot of kids? Cause you mentioned he was like kind of worried that you were gonna give him shit for being in a punk rock. Were there a lot of you getting into punk rock at that time or is it still like a little tiny cult? Very tiny, yeah. tiny amount of people. I mean. There was nobody really dressing too punk at that point in my high school, but there were people that were aware and liked it. But most people, you know, poo pooed it. Yeah. <laughs> so, how long after that first show did you meet these guys? And, and I guess you formed the tourists before you you call it Red Cross, right? Yeah. Uh, before I met who? How how long after that first show? Sorry, was was this meeting with? Uh, Steve. Oh, that was probably early 1979, I'd imagine. If it had been like, you know, the Dickies was in the summer of 78, and I know Red Cross formed in 79. So uh, six months maybe after it, that. It's kind of funny because you guys are the first punk rock kids, right? Like there's like adults that are in the scene, and there's obviously like a generation that kind of just 
directly precedes you, but you are the first wave of of kids that are getting into this thing in this way that so many kids kind of get into this thing where, you know, it, it's just the excitement is just there and you're like a young person discovering this world. And it's really sort of the archetype, like how heavily you, got, you guys were into music, you know, playing these bands. And like you were saying, like you're playing these venues that you had seen these sort of established rock acts a few months later, like it really is a scene where, where young people, you know, could kind of take over or young people did have equal footing as adults. Yeah, no, for sure. There were very many, you know, there was only a handful of younger kids into the the scene back when I started going back in my day, Sonny, when I first started going to shows, you know. Yeah. Most parents maybe wouldn't let their kids out. I mean, it was, it was the late seventies. It was a little more like, yeah, whatever. But uh, uh, there still wasn't a whole lot of really young kids. Well, yeah. Cause like Steve talks when talked about it, when he was on the show, like he got kidnapped eventually. Like he got kidnapped by his girlfriend. I, I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Well, that must have been really kind of terrifying, like to be a young person to have something like that kind of go down around you. Yes, and it's, I just remember his parents were like, you know, freaked out, and you know, and uh, by that time I was already out of the band, but you know, I was still friends with him and in contact with the, his his parents, and it was it was pretty shocking. Yeah. Well, I guess it's the scene, like also the um, a woman who went to shows the mask was killed by the Hillside Strangler. I believe too. Right. Like it seems like it, it is a, a scene that's kind of like this like fantasy land for young people, but the reality is it's kind of happening in the real world and, and it's happening in a big major city like Los Angeles. Yeah, well, and Hollywood at that time was, you know, I mean it's all gentrified now. There's pockets of, of sketchiness, but it was pretty sketchy sketchy. I mean, there was prostitutes lining up down Sunset Boulevard and parts of Hollywood Boulevard for miles and miles, and you know, it was run down a lot of closed businesses it was you know it, there was people squatting in buildings on hollywood boulevard that are now like huge mega monstrosity uh what's it called like uh you know what do you call it you know where there's movie theaters and shopping centers and yeah, developments giant like giant, giant development of hollywood and vine like a block from that where there's this other development there was you know there was a run down abandoned building that all the punks were squatting in so it, it was sketchy mm -hmm. yeah like it feels like you know like uh it's almost like a precursor for something like this to happen is you need kind of a rundown city space with lots of spaces for bands to practice and people to live cheaply right. like it, it's almost like this is uh necessitated by urban decay a little bit Yes, and then the you know the the established clubs aside from maybe the whiskey for the, and Starwood for the bigger bands you'd have to have like you know the, the smaller underground clubs, which the mass was literally underground the basement of the of a porno theater, <coughs> Pussycat Theater, and and just you know people running out halls and throwing shows and you know there was no permits and you know you never know when the cops are going to come break it up. Do you remember your first time going to the mask? Yes, I do. I'd already been going to some shows and it had closed for a bit and then reopened for a little bit. So, yeah, so I actually have some photos. I wish I could find the rest of them. I found a couple of them of the Go-Go's playing at the mask. Oh, awesome. I can't remember who they played with. It might have been X, but it, 
but I do have some photos of the Go-Go's at the mask. It's wild when you go back and you kind of look at, you know, you mentioned the Go-Go's, you mentioned Axe, obviously yourselves and, you know, and I say yourselves, I mean like all the bands you've been involved in. It's incredible when you think about how small that room is. Like I broke into that building and went downstairs and got to see like the mask and you're like, wow, it's like something so small produced so much culture. Like it changed rock and roll history in that little room. And like, obviously lots of culture comes out of Los Angeles, but it's hard to think of like something that concentrated happening before or after yeah because it was the only place like it at the time yeah so there was that was it like all the great bands that came out of cbgb's because that's the only place that those those bands could play (laughs) um do you remember the first time you uh went to uh you met the last uh yeah i believe it was at the church where black flag practiced and red cross practiced and descendants and i yeah that's where i met the met those guys they were there they seem like a band that's kind of understated in their influence yeah they were one of the most popular club bands and they they had more of a diverse track because they were kind of like 60s revival garage but they had some punk attitude and you know beatlesque harmonies at times and they were, uh, you know, they, they were pioneers in, you know, putting out singles of a local band in, in, that wasn't mainstream. So they were definitely, uh, definitely uh, up there with some of my biggest influences and always, always enjoyed them. It feels like the, the, the stuff that was happening in the church was like a very kind of like separate thing like it was almost like a, a thing unto itself a little bit did you kind of get that sense like this was a uh you know i don't want to say a cult because that kind of overstates it but like that this was like very much like um a scene within a scene kind of going on uh yeah because it was in the suburbs you know it was in you know a block from the beach mm-hmm. or two blocks maybe uh and it was yeah, just kind of some kind, you know, happens organically. Yeah. And, you know, the Black Flag would throw parties and eventually the people from Hollywood were coming to the parties. And then the people from Orange County and that kind of like, you know, they, that helped spawn all the other bands and, and the introduction to the Orange County bands and the South Bay bands to the Hollywood scene. And it all kind of exploded from there. But I think that was definitely the powder keg of the explosion of L.A. punk from just a Hollywood thing. Could you feel it changing? Like, was there like a like a sense in the air? Like, obviously, the circle jerks are forming around this point, but there is that sort of fabled shift that happens when the kids from uh, Orange County and and down south kind of come up to Hollywood and start going to the shows. Like, could you could you see that going down in front of your eyes, or do you think that's overstated by people historically? No, it's not overstated. It, it was definitely a big thing because it you know they brought that crazy skateboarder surfboarder mentality. It's like they just go for it, fuck it, you know. Yeah. And you know some of them were more athletic than the, the artistic types, and they were a little more aggressive, and you know. Some of them had that jock attitude. <laughs> Wanted to beat up hippies, you know, people with long, uh, 
if, you know, if, if, instead of people come up and give you shit and then if they try to fight you, you'd run away. They'd want to fight. They, they brought like, fuck you, bring it on <laughs> mentality. We're not going to take your shit. It was pretty passive, you know. You know, there was, a, you know, there are fights here and there, but it, it was, it, it almost became like, the, that's when it really became, okay, it's going to be us against them and, and we're going to resort to violence if, ne- if necessary. Well, it's so interesting because like it, it's, you know, I've heard people come on and there's been all sorts of different perspectives over the years on people who've been on the show on, on the effects of that or what it was like uh-huh. at different times. But like you're saying, like the end result was punks were not going to take shit anymore. And yeah, even from other punks, unfortunately, but like certainly from people around them. Right. Did you, did you kind of, uh, you know, because the circle jerks are a band that, you know, it feels like kind of gets, it will like, you know, what, like you and black flag are like the, you know, the, the big bands that bring in hardcore and this sort of energy. Did you see this happening around the country as you're playing different shows too? Like, did you see the, the, these shows kind of having younger kids beginning to show up and like a change in the scene? Cause it is the birth of hardcore at that point. Yes, for sure. I mean, you know, but bands like that definitely brought a younger thing. And then, you know, some of the other bands that were from orange County, that were younger, like the adolescents, Agent Orange. Yeah. TSOL. And then they, uh, you know, and it definitely uh, brought in a younger, you know, a younger group of bands into the, uh, the punk rock world. What was the deal with Greg Greg? Because you have that one song that comes out years later on the soundtrack um, to the movie, but it was, uh, it's kind of like a more proggy thing, right? It was kind of proggy folky. I don't know. It was a, uh, just something bored between tours to do, just getting together with friends and making noise, you know? Yeah. And Greg was always into like uh, other styles and folk and, you know, the bluegrass or whatever, Americana stuff. And it was a way for him to get an outlet of some of that. And I just kind of coattailed it. <laughs> Cause there's, there's definitely like a, a point where it seems like a lot of bands, you know, like, uh, well, bad religion does into the unknown, you know, but there's a lot of bands that go metal, a lot of bands, go more country like a lot of bands kind of leave the scene it feels like or, or, or driven away from the scene for whatever reason but the circle jerks are kind of the one band that kind of holds true throughout that time um did you feel like there was a moment where everyone started kind of kind of changing or shifting and was there like ever a temptation for you to kind of like explore that side or do you always want to stay in like punk hardcore bands we wanted to stay hard i mean we kind of slowed down a bit we, we went a little more quote-unquote rock but i never would say we went we didn't go the speed metal route because, you know, I can't, I'm not a shredder. And, uh, but uh, yeah, and then we saw some of the bands, you know, get their hair all poofy and go a little, little towards the glam when that, and all that started happening. It just wasn't our thing. Yeah. And when it's kind of like, it, it, it just, it is the band that kind of holds it together. It seems. And then I guess Bad Religion is another band that's brought up like once Back to the Known kind of happens as being like the band that kind of right. He carries that flag for LA during the lean years. Mm-hmm. There were some lean years. 
<laughs> what are your memories of the Back to the Known show, like the first show in San Diego? I think it's in San Diego, right? Or, or there's a famous video of it. Um, maybe it's Santa Monica. It's a a huge show, and it was the first show back uh, around Back to the Known EP. Might have been the Olympic Auditorium. Might have been the Auditorium show. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it was uh, a lot of people were leery of like what Bad Religion was going to sound like since after the Into the Unknown debacle pretty much drove all the punkers away mm. and people didn't know what to expect. And I think they were like a little happy when they we came out and did the old stuff. It's such a great video. Like the, there's, there is like a, a, a real intensity to the, to the performance. And I, I guess that's yeah. kind of where it comes from. Right. I'm sure there was some, might've been some drugs and alcohol involved too. Like some <laughs> of us, not Greg, he never really party. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the, that might've also added to the edge a little bit. And oh. that whole, and that just that, that, that venue, I think, believe it was Olympic. This that venue was just had a lot of energy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing I wanted to ask you about. Like, what are your thoughts? What, what were your thoughts when you went to these other places and you started seeing kind of like this, this West coast version of hardcore exported because it's really <clears throat> that brand of hardcore that becomes the dominant brand of hardcore, you know, uh, on the East coast, you know, like when you're right. going to places like Boston or, or DC. Right. Yeah. It was kind of like, Oh wow. These people are think are listening to our stuff. <laughs> you can hear the influence. It was like it was pretty cool. Yeah. 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 Well, it's amazing how how big that influence is, right? Like it it's certainly like it really is the foundation of of what becomes like sort of the dominant strain of underground music in America. Right. Uh well, how'd you guys get around tours back then? Like was it through calling cards? Like booking uh, tours and stuff back then? Yeah, there was that. And then there was this magazine you you would get it was called Overthrow. Okay. And it was it was published out in New York, like in Hell's Kitchen area, kind of near CB's. And it was like anti-establishment, anti-government. It was kind of hippie-esque. And they would publish calling card numbers from all these major corporations. <laughs> and and they get, you know, eventually the companies would get a hold of it, get catch wind on where these numbers were coming from, and they change them. But they also had, you know, someone cracked the code on how they actually uh, actually came up with the like the, the four digit, like you you you're kind of like a pin number, but you know your phone number and then another four numbers. Yeah. And if you knew the last four, if you knew the last four digits of the phone number, there was a formula on how they came up with the calling card, so you could just look up a phone of a business and make it make make your own fake calling card number and they weren't they weren't hip to the fact that someone cracked the code on how they did <laughs> fake credit card numbers from like Exxon or you know Bank of America or even the phone companies some of them were they you, you they 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 figured out what the uh the the, co- the corporate calling card number was for like you know AT&T or something it was great <laughs> well it, and it's so awesome because like this is this brief period where like you know, online, uh, I guess, surveillance hadn't gone to the point. Like, you, you know, you can't imagine this sort of scam would operate or like a magazine like Overthrow would exist for very long in the right. present day. 
there, unless it was on the dark web. Yeah, that's true. There's, yeah. there's probably like there is probably like an equivalent now that I'm just not hip enough to know about. There's like a young generation of punk kids that have already hacked this code, I guess. But right, it it does feel though at this time like photocopiers and cassette, you know, recorders. Like there was all these things that were in the hands of of young people to like you know produce culture or or to get their culture out there even. Yeah, well, if you were sm- actually getting back to the con card, if you just use a payphone and you were smart, you'd be hard to get busted for that yeah yeah oh no and it, it, and that survived even when i was first starting touring like there were still like calling card scams yep. to kind of get around mm-hmm. long distance charges yeah like it and it feels like it was a tradition that was kind of passed down much in the same way of of like that fabled like tour book that doa had that they gave to black flag and then black flag kind of took around and, and everyone kind of like you know it feels like this is sort of like this like oral history that gets passed down from one generation of bands to the next yeah. mm-hmm what was the um uh oh, so, sorry yeah like you mentioned going to new york and and you know the overthrow when was your sort of political awareness when did that begin for you like you know being aware of all this sort of like stuff like yippies and and sort of countercultural stuff uh i guess from my, my parents my dad was always watching the news and you know really into politics and taking me to political rallies as a young as a young kid so I was mm-hmm. always kind of aware. And he was he was pretty left, left-leaning. So I was definitely aware of, you know, it was the Vietnam era, war era. Yeah. Nixon and, you know, the civil rights and the craziness and riots at Watts and Detroit and all those things. So I was definitely aware. Were you aware of Manson when that all went? Because obviously that's, a once again, a thing that's brought up time and time again by kids that kind of were growing up in that area during that time. Yes, definitely aware of Manson, but you know, <clears throat> I was I was younger and I was definitely aware of the the watch riots, but it didn't like it didn't compute. I was really young, but when mm-hmm. you know some of the other mass murderers, that famous ones that were go, going around L.A., like the Hillside Strangler for sure, and uh, uh, what's that, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, yeah, yeah, yeah. It really feels though that the uh... also the S the SLA the SLA stuff. There was a there was a sporting goods store that used to sell guns, and it got it got you know hit by the SLA, and they stole a bunch of weapons from it. And my neighbor got in my neighbor a few blocks away, so it oh, was wow. not you know I, I was hip. Yeah, that, no, it, that's scary. You know, like the 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 fact like you guys are a product of a very turbulent time mm-hmm. in American history. And like through the kids of the generation that would have been post Charles Manson, like there was a chilling effect. It feels like on youth culture in that part of America, all over America around that time. And that punk is sort of the first big, uh, you know, youth explosion kind of after that, you know, 10 years later. Right. After the whole hippie thing was over. Yeah. 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 The hippie experiment. And it feels like the police reaction, society's reaction in that part of America is very much, you know, almost conditioned or reflective of what had happened with the hippie thing, like how scared they were of youth culture. Uh, yeah, it happened with punk. It happened with with hip hop when that, you know, the yeah. gangsta rap when that first became, uh, you know, out when it first came out. So it that's just what happens to the mainstream 
society doesn't know how to process this still. It kind of, I guess you have to have that, right? Like if something's going to be important and relevant for young people, it has to scare. Right. The authorities. Yeah. (laughs) If if they're into it, it's never going to stick with the kids. That's right. Yeah. Uh, eventually, uh, you know, the circle jerks wind up on LAX records and are you guys are managed by, uh, Steve gold, right. For a time, Steve gold and Jerry Goldstein. Yeah. What was it like being managed by them? Did you ever get to meet Eric burden? Cause he was also involved in LAX records too. I believe he was already, already left their management. They, they really had, they might've had war and that was about it. They had us at the Crusados for a minute or the plugs. I think it was the plugs. They didn't have many bands left because they ripped everybody off. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it feels like it would have been a hard time because like around you, there would have been just like, you know, the speed metal stuff would have been going on and, and, you know, maybe college radio stuff hadn't even really started happening yet, but it just feels like, yeah. Like where would you guys have fit? (laughs) Maybe with war. Yeah. No, it, it, it was weird. But it was like, okay, we'll give it, what the hell, we'll, we'll try if we can get some quote-unquote real legitimate management. And uh, it definitely took us to the next level, but they were also the management company that said we shouldn't do Repo Man because we weren't getting paid enough money. <laughs> and we're like, are you kidding? Did you read the script? And we get to make fun of ourselves. <laughs> you know? And it's like, like, no, we're doing this thing. So... Did you know that it was going to be a cult thing when you were doing it? Because uh, Xander yeah. said he did. Xander said he could feel it right away just reading the script. Yeah. He would say that. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, we thought it would be cool, but yeah. I didn't know if we knew if it would be a cult thing or what, but we knew it was it was great. And the people involved, like the other bands and and the music, it was going to be, you know, something we did, definitely didn't want to miss out on. Yeah. We must have had some kind of idea, but we didn't realize how big of a thing it would be. Speaking of how big things were, like, how much of a change did you think Nirvana had on on what you guys were doing at the time? Because, you know, I've heard uh, Larry Livermore was on the show and saying that he thinks that Nirvana's influence or impact on Green Day and the stuff that they were doing is a little overstated because their thing was kind of already going by that point. Like, do you kind of feel the same way or do you think that Nirvana's success opened doors for other bands? It opened doors for, yeah, they, they pretty much single-handedly killed the whole grunge thing and, and hair metal. Like that was it. It was over mm-hmm. for the most part. And everybody, you know, but you guys already had a following, right? Like, like yeah. I don't know. I'm always like, yeah. you know, but those bands also would say, hey, these are the bands we listen to and this is what we like. This is yeah. our influence. Yeah. So definitely, it definitely helped make punk more acceptable when, you know, multi-platinum, you know, artists were saying, yeah, yeah, this is this is where we came from. We came from the punk rock thing. Mm-hmm. I guess it's almost like that determinist versus, uh, I don't know, individualist argument. Like it, it's almost like, was this going to happen anyway? And would it have been another band if it wasn't Nirvana or did Nirvana was, were they the catalyst? Because it feels like it's kind of going towards that way anyway. Like you guys were having success on your own terms and yeah. you know, there were other bands and, and other Metallica places. Metallica was another one. Yes. Yeah. Definitely punk influenced. Yeah. And they would rep it too. Yeah. Yep. 
yeah like it's almost uh i don't know i've I've, it's only after talking to larry that i kind of really started thinking about it but like oh yeah like operation ivy put out their record before nirvana put out their record like things were already in motion in these other scenes and uh sure yeah yeah there was there was then there was the whole minneapolis thing before the whole seattle thing yeah yeah you know it was going to happen somewhere like you said some band would have taken it to the, the next level yeah what was it like though after that point where everything did change like you know and maybe even a little few years later for you know where all of a sudden punk is you know as big as it was in la during the first wave like it is kind of hitting that point again right like is that is that something where yeah i like you know just having not lived through it was that something that you know like you were prepared for or seeing coming or is that something that just came out of nowhere for you or it was all gradual so it kind of you know it wasn't like it it was it was a gradual decline where you know the scene was huge and then it just went pretty much back underground and uh and the different styles became more popular different scenes sprung up and then it started you know growing a little bit and then when the whole you know nirvana green day offspring thing mm-hmm. it just brought it all back up to another level and made it safe for all of the world to, to say i like punk rock <laughs> yeah i guess it is that safe thing that happens yeah. you know like it really does kind of it, it, it's not people uh safety pinning their noses together i guess no. they were still though that i, I remember seeing people sure. doing that <laughs> at that circle jerk show that you guys uh broke up the day before definitely people with their noses safety pinned together at that show <laughs> yeah uh greg this has been amazing and anytime you want to come back on the show and chat about punk please know the door is always open well thank you i love the punk rock (laughs) thank you greg for coming on the show when you're right there greg will be back for a part two whenever he feels like it he can come back whenever he wants but until then that is that Coming up on the next episode of Turned Out of Punk proper. This is one uh, I'm very, very excited for you to hear. Uh, I thought it was going to go one way when I sat down to do this interview, and it went somewhere completely different. And my gosh, it might be one of my favorite episodes I've ever gotten to do. Coming up on the next episode of Turned Out of Punk, from Death Cab for Cutie, Ben Gibbard is on the show. And this is a good one. I'm very excited for you to hear it. And that will be coming out in a, a few short days. And there'll probably, probably be a From the Vaults in between the two, too. But that is that. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights. And stop hate and violence towards people of different races and faiths and different nationalities and Make sure people keep their hands out of other people's uteruses and and telling them what to do with their reproductive systems. This is not political stuff that I'm talking about here. I'm talking about just basic human rights stuff. People have the right and, and the need to live free. Free from hatred, free from violence, uh, free from discrimination. So get involved. There's, if there's organizations that are doing good work that you believe in, see if you can lend your time, lend your money, do what you can, uh, get, get out there. Um, do something. Speaking of doing something, maybe do something for yourself and, and try and meditate. I didn't believe in that shit. 
and uh, it's not shit. It's not shit at all. I thought it was, but it turns out I was a shithead because it really works. People have known this for thousands of years, but I'm telling you, try it. It's it's for yourself. You know, it might take a couple times before it clicks with you, but it's worth it. It really is. Uh, speaking of doing stuff for other people, though, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them. They're literally just dead weight, and I've seen it. I've seen it do miracles. So sign those organ donor cards, I, please. And uh, speaking of doing something for the scene, create your own culture. Get out there. Start a band. Start a fanzine. Do something. Anyone can do something in this thing, and that's what makes it so special. It's a scene where you can create part of it, and you're encouraged to create part of it. So... No, and maybe maybe it doesn't have to be something so grandiose as a band or a zine. Maybe it's just a flyer. Do some flyer art for someone. Who knows? It'll make you feel better. Uh, and that is that for me. Thank you for listening. Next week I'll be in in my uh, home basement again, so it won't be as echoey. Uh, but that's that. Stay safe. Love you. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.